0: All About Love, Chapter Two, Justice, Childhood Love Lessons. We learn about love in childhood, whether our homes are happy or troubled, our families functional or dysfunctional. It's the original school of love. I cannot remember ever wanting to ask my parents to define love. To my child's mind, love was the good feeling you got when family treated you like you mattered and you treated them like they mattered. Love was always and only about good feeling. In early adolescence, when we were whipped and told that these punishments were, quote, for our own good, unquote, or, quote, I'm doing this because I love you, unquote, my siblings and I were confused. Why was harsh punishment a gesture of love? As children do, we pretended to accept this grown-up logic, but we knew in our hearts it was not right. We knew it was a lie, just like the lie the grown-ups told when they explained after harsh punishment, quote, it hurts me more than it hurts you, unquote. There is nothing that creates more confusion about love in the minds and hearts of children than unkind and or cruel punishment meted out by the grown-ups they have been taught they should love and respect. Such children learn early on to question the meaning of love, yearn for love even as they doubt it exists. On the flip side, there are masses of children who grow up confident love is a good feeling, who are never punished, who are allowed to believe that love is only about getting your needs met, Your desires satisfied. In their child's minds, love is not about what they have to give. Love is mostly something given to them. When children like these are overindulged, either materially or by being allowed to act out, this is a form of neglect. These children, though not in any way abused or uncared for, are usually as unclear about love's meaning as their neglected and emotionally abandoned counterparts. Both groups have learned to think about love primarily in relation to good feelings in the context of reward and punishment. From early childhood on, most of us remember being told we were loved when we did things pleasing to our parents, and we learned to give them affirmations of love when they pleased us. As children grow, they associate love more with acts of attention, affection, and caring. They still see parents who attempt to satisfy their desires as giving love. Children from all classes tell me that they love their parents and are loved by them. Even those who are being hurt or abused. When asked to define love, small children pretty much agree that it's a good feeling, quote, like when you have something to eat that you really like, unquote, especially if it's your favorite. They will say, quote, my mommy loves me because she takes care of me and helps me do everything right, unquote. When asked how to love someone, they talk about giving hugs and kisses, being sweet and cuddly. The notion that love is about getting what one what one wants whether it's a hug or a new sweater or a trip to Disneyland is a way of thinking about love that makes it difficult for children to acquire a deeper emotional understanding we like to imagine that most children will be born into homes where they will be loved the love will not be present if the grown-ups who parent do not know how to love although lots of children are raised in homes where they are given some degree of care love may not be sustained or even present Adults ac- across lines of class, race, and gender indict the family. Their testimony conveys worlds of childhood where love was lacking, where chaos, neglect, abuse, and coercion reign supreme. In her book, quote, Raised in Captivity, Why Does America Fail Its Children?, Lucia Hodgson documents the reality of lovelessness in the lives of a huge majority of children in the United States. Every day, thousands of children in our culture are verbally and physically abused, starved, tortured, and murdered. They are the true victims of intimate terrorism in that they have no collective voice and no rights. They remain the property of parenting adults to do with as they will. There can be no love without justice. Until we live in a culture that not only respects, but also upholds basic civil rights for children, most children will not know love. In our culture, the private family dwelling is the one institutionalized sphere of power that can easily be autocratic and fascistic. As absolute rulers, parents can usually decide without any intervention what is best for their children. If children's rights are taken away in any domestic household, they have no legal recourse. Unlike women who can organize to protect sexist domination, demanding both equal rights and justice, children can only rely on well meaning adults to assist them. If they are being exploited and oppressed in the home. We all know that irrespective of class or race, other adults rarely intervene to question or challenge what their peers are doing with their children. At a party, mostly of educated, well-paid professionals, a multi-generational, multi-racial evening, the subject of disciplining kids by hitting was raised. Almost all the guests over 30 spoke about the necessity of using physical punishment Many of us in the room had been smacked, whipped, or beaten as children. Men spoke the loudest in defense of physical punishment. Women, mostly mothers, talked about hitting as a last resort, but one that they deployed when necessary. As one man bragged about the aggressive beatings he had received from his mother, sharing that they had, quote, been good for him, unquote, I interrupted and suggested that he might not be the misogynistic women hater he is today if he had not been brutally beaten by a woman as a child. Although it's too simplistic to assume that just because we are hit as kids, we will grow up to be people who hit, I wanted the group to acknowledge that being physically hurt or abused by grown-ups when we are children has harmful consequences in our adult life. A young professional, the mother of a small boy, bragged about the fact that she did not hit, that when her son misbehaved, she clamped down on his flesh, pinching him until he got the message. But this, too, is a form of coercive abuse. The other guests supported this young mother and her husband in their methods. I was astounded. I was a lone voice speaking out for the rights of children. Later, with other people, I suggested that had we all been listening to a man tell us that every time his wife or girlfriend does something he does not like, he just clamps down on her flesh, pinching her as hard as he can, everyone would have been appalled. They would have seen the action as both coercive and abusive. Yet they could not acknowledge that it was wrong for an adult to hurt a child in this way. All the parents in that room claim that they are loving. All the people in that room were college educated. Most called themselves good liberals, supportive of civil rights and feminism. But when it came to the rights of children, they had a different standard. One of the most important social myths we must debunk if we are to become a more loving culture is the one that teaches parents that abuse and neglect can coexist with love. Abuse and neglect negate love. Care and affirmation, the opposite of abuse and humiliation, are the foundation of love. No one can rightfully claim to be loving when behaving abusively. Yet parents do this all the time in our culture. Children are told that they are loved even though they are being abused. It is a testimony to the failure of loving practice that abuse is happening in the first place. Many of the men who offer their personal testimony in Boyhood Growing Up Male tell stories of random violent abuse by parents that inflicted trauma. In his essay, quote, When My Father Hit Me, unquote, Bob Shelby describes the pain of repeated beatings by his dad, stating, quote, From these experiences with my father, I learned about the abuse of power. By physically hitting my mother and me, he effectively stopped us from reacting to his humiliation of us. We cease to protest his violation of our boundaries and his ignoring our sense of being individuals with needs, demands, and rights of our own, unquote. Throughout his essay, Shelby expresses contradictory understandings about the meaning of love. On the one hand, he says, quote, I have no doubt that my father loved me, but his love became misdirected. He said he wanted to give me what he didn't have as a child, unquote. On the other hand, Shelby confesses, quote, what he most showed me, however, was his difficulty in being loved. All his life he had struggled with feelings of being unloved, unquote. When Shelby describes his childhood, it is clear that his dad had affection for him and also gave him care some of the time. However, his dad did not know how to give and receive love. The affection he gave was undermined by the abuse. Writing from the space of adult recollection, Shelby talks about the impact of physical abuse on his boyhood psyche, quote, as the intensity of the pain of his hits increased, I felt the hurt in my heart. I realized what hurt me the most were my feelings of love for this man who was hitting me. I covered my love with a dark cloth of hate, unquote. A similar story is told by other men in autobiographical narrative, men of all classes and races. One of the myths about lovelessness is that it exists only among the poor and deprived. Yet lovelessness is not a function of poverty or material lack. In homes where material privileges abound, children suffer emotional ne- neglect and abuse. In order to cope with the pain of wounds inflicted in childhood, most of the men in boyhood sought some form of therapeutic care. To find their way back to love, they had to heal. Many men in our culture never recover from childhood unkindnessness. Studies show that males and females who are violently humiliated and abused repeatedly with no caring intervention are likely to be dysfunctional and will be predisposed to abuse others violently. In Jarvis J. Master's book, Finding Freedom, Writings from Death Row, a chapter called Scars recounts his recognition that a vast majority of the scars covering the bodies of fellow inmates, not all of whom were on death row, were not, as one might think, the result of violent adult interactions. These men were covered with scars from childhood beatings inflicted by parenting adults. Yet, he reports, none of them saw themselves as the victims of abuse. Throughout my many years of institutionalization, I, like so many of these men, unconsciously took refuge behind prison walls. Not until I read a series of books for adults who had been abused as children did I become committed to the process of examining my own childhood. Unquote. Organizing the men for group discussion, Masters writes, quote, I spoke to them of the pain I had carried through more than a dozen institutions. And I explained how all these events ultimately trapped me in a pattern of lashing out against everything. Like many abused children, male and female, these men were beaten by mothers, fathers, and other parental caregivers. When Master's mother dies, he feels grief that he cannot be with her. The other inmates do not understand this longing since she neglected and abused him. He responds, quote, she had neglected me, but am I to neglect myself as well by denying that I wished I'd been with her when she died? That I still love her? Unquote. Even on death row, Master's heart remained open, and he can honestly confess to longing to give and receive love. Being hurt by parenting adults rarely alters a child's desire to love and be loved by them. Among grown-ups who are wounded in childhood, the desire to be loved by uncaring parents persists even when there is a clear acceptance of the reality that this love will never be forthcoming. Often, children will want to remain with parental caregivers who have hurt them because of their cathected feelings for those adults. They will cling to the misguided assumption that their parents love them, even even in the face of remembered abuse, usually by denying the abuse and focusing on random acts of care. In the prologue to Creating Love, John Bradshaw calls this confusion about love quote, mystification, unquote. He shares, quote, I was brought up to believe that love is rooted in blood relationships. You naturally loved anyone in your family. Love was not a choice. The love I learned about was bound by duty and obligation. My family taught me our culture's rules and beliefs about love. Even with the best intentions, our parents often confused love with what we would now call abuse, unquote. To demystify the meaning of love, the art, and practice of loving, we need to use sound definitions of love when talking with children, and we also need to ensure that loving action is never tainted with abuse. In a society like ours, where children are denied full civil rights, it is absolutely crucial that parenting adults learn how to offer loving discipline. Setting boundaries and teaching children how to set boundaries for themselves prior to misbehavior is an essential part of loving parenting. When parents start out disciplining children by using punishment, this becomes the pattern children respond to. Loving parents work hard to discipline without punishment. This does not mean they never punish, only that when they do punish, they choose punishments like timeouts or the taking away of privileges. They focus on teaching children how to be self-disciplining and how to take responsibility for their actions. Since the vast majority of us were raised in households where punishment was deemed the primary, if not the only way to teach discipline, the fact that discipline can be taught without punishment surprises many people. One of the simplest ways children learn discipline is by learning how to be orderly in daily life, to clean up any messes they make. Just teaching a child to take responsibility for placing toys in the appropriate place after playtime is one way to teach responsibility and self-discipline. Learning to clean up the mess made during playtime helps a child learn to be responsible. And they can learn from this practical act how to cope with emotional mess. Were there current television shows that actually modeled loving parenting? Parents could learn these skills. Television shows oriented towards families are often favorably... Television shows oriented toward families often favorably represent children when they are overindulged, are disrespectful, or are acting out. Often, they behave in a more adult manner than the parents. What we see on television today actually, at best, models for us inappropriate behavior, and in worst case scenarios, unloving behaviors. A great example of this is a movie like Home Alone, which celebrates disobedience and violence. But television can portray a caring, loving family interaction. There are whole generations of adults who talk nostalgically about what they wanted their families to be like, like fictive portraits of family life portrayed on Leave it to Beaver or My Three Sons. We desired our families to be like those we saw on the screen because we were witnessing loving parenting, loving households. Expressing to parents our desire to have families like the ones we saw on the screen, we were often told that those families were not realistic. The reality was, however, that parents who come from unloving homes have never learned how to love and cannot create loving home environments or see them as realistic when watching them on television. The reality they are most familiar with and trust is the one they knew intimately. There was nothing utopian about the way problems were resolved on these shows. Parent and child discussion, critical reflection, and finding a way to make amends was usually the process by which misbehavior was addressed. On shows, there was never just one parenting figure. Even though the mother was absent on My Three Sons, the lovable Uncle Charlie was a second parent. In a loving household where there are several parental caregivers, when a child feels one parent is being unjust, that child can appeal to another adult for mediation, understanding, or support. We live in a society where there are a growing number of single parents, female and male but the individual parent can always choose a friend to be another parenting figure, however limited their interaction. This is why the categories of godmother and godfather are so crucial. When my best girlhood friend chose to have a child without a father in the the household, I became the godmother, a second parenting figure. My friend's daughter turns to me to intervene if there's a misunderstanding or miscommunication between her and her mom. Here's one small example. My adult friend had never received an allowance as a child and didn't feel she had the available extra money to offer an allowance to her daughter. She also believed her daughter would use all the money to buy candy. Telling me that her daughter was angry with her over this issue, she opened up the space for us to have a dialogue. I shared my belief that allowances are important ways to teach children discipline, boundaries, and working through desires versus needs. I knew enough about my friend's finances to challenge her insistence that she couldn't afford to pay a small allowance while simultaneously encouraging her not to project the wrongs of her childhood onto the present. As to whether the daughter would buy candy, I suggested she give the allowance with a statement of hope that it would not be used for overindulgence and see what happened. It all worked out just fine. Happy to have an allowance, the daughter chose to save her money to buy things she thought were really important, and candy wasn't on the list. Had there not been another adult parenting figure involved, it might have taken those two a longer time to resolve their conflict an unnecessary estrangement and wounding might have occurred. Significantly, love and respectful interaction between two adults exemplified for the daughter, who was told about the discussion, ways of problem solving. By revealing her willingness to accept criticism and her capacity to reflect on her behavior and change, the the mother modeled for her daughter, without losing dignity or authority, the recognition that parents are not always right. Until we begin to see loving parenting in all walks of life in our culture, many people will continue to believe we can only teach discipline through punishment, and that harsh punishment is an acceptable way to relate to children. Because children can innately offer affection or respond to affectionate care by returning it, it is often assumed that they know how to love and therefore do not need to learn the art of loving. While the will to love is present in very young children, they still need guidance in the ways of love. Grown ups provide that guidance. Love is as love does, and it's our responsibility to give children love. When we love children, we acknowledge by our every action that they are not property, that they have rights, and that we respect and uphold their rights. Without justice, there can be no love.